Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. So says King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. This book is perhaps most famous for the line, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And this context might incline us to interpret the opening sentence of my homily in a dark fashion. Beginnings are exciting, full of promise, but we will discover that our vain hopes are misplaced, disproportionate to the labor involved, and therefore we'll be more at peace when the thing is done. But there is another way to interpret this, because the word end is ambiguous. It can mean a couple different things. The end of something can mean uh, when it ceases to exist, but it can also mean the goal toward which a thing is moving. And so we speak, for example, of a means to an end. The end is what we're trying to get to, the, the goal of the project. And in classical philosophy and theology, every living thing and each activity moves toward its end. It's telos, if we use the Greek word. And from this perspective, the end of a thing really is better than the beginning. I may have, for example, a great idea for a symphony. This idea may be very exciting in, in my head. I'd get this inspiration for a great melody. But until I write it down and edit the parts and have an orchestra play it, it's not really a symphony yet. It's just the beginning of a long process. And when I was actively composing music in the world, I frequently found that my initial inspirations uh, could be improved upon through the process of trying to realize, to make real the inspiration, rather than have it just be something in my head. And often I would discover that my imaginary melody actually had flaws to it, that these flaws could be ironed out, they could be fixed, they could be corrected if I worked on them, and that the end really was an improvement on the original idea. But this raises a question. How could I tell when something had a flaw or what was an improvement was? If I had two different versions of the melody, how did I choose between the two? Well, this difficulty is solved when one studies actual symphonies, right? So if you pay attention to the way certain instruments play, to the typical musical rhetoric that great composers used, uh, then you get an idea for what works and what doesn't, what is good and what's not so good, what will make a good symphony and what will make a symphony that everybody will forget about in a year. So it was for this reason, again, that classical philosophy and theology have always been concerned with the nature of things. So to know the nature of a symphony, to understand how it works from inside, is to be able to tell the good from the bad. And so when we know the nature of a thing, we know when it's improving, when it's moving toward its goal, and when it's falling away from its goal. The good is simply the natural movement of all created things that they have toward their fulfillment. The way a child matures to rational adulthood and becomes a true agent in his or her own right. So if we wish to know what is the good life for human beings, we need to establish what human nature actually is. 
and what a good human life looks like, and then we need to study that and check our own lives against it. And the church's answer to this question, what is human nature, what a good human life looks like, is sanctity, sainthood, the lives of the saints. And so if we wish to know whether we are moving toward our true good, we can study the lives of the saints. We can make friends with them, by the way. That's the wonderful thing about the communion of saints. We can ask them what they would do. This is what a fulfilled human life lived to its potential looks like. Now, I've been speaking of classical philosophy and its support of the church's typical theology. But, of course, philosophy didn't end with the classical period. It didn't even end with the medieval period. Uh, And, in fact, in the topics that I've raised so far in this homily, there was a big sea change in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, if, if you don't mind me specifying it. So there were philosophers in those centuries, such as Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. They began talking about human life from a different perspective, this perspective that they called the state of nature, the beginning of humankind rather than its end. And it's important to note that when they were talking about the state of nature, they were using this word nature in a way a little different from the way I used it uh, earlier in my homily. So, for example, in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas would have used the word nature to describe qualities imprinted in a creature by God, qualities engendered by God for specific ends or goals. So each thing has its own nature. By contrast, Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century, he uses this word nature more in a way that we moderns tend to use it. If you just say the word nature, you think of outdoors and trees and rivers and things. What we're thinking of usually is a conglomerate of random objects following scientific laws, right? So these objects, being the product of random forces, no longer have a goal. They simply are. And we give the goal to them. But the problem is, we human beings no longer have a nature either by this standard. We're random beings with no particular goal. And this way of thinking has become so encoded in our way of life, just the way we understand uh, commerce, uh, morality, laws, and so on, that we can often resist the invitation to sanctity because we've been conditioned by our culture not to understand our goal. Often the invitation that we resist, it's not that God comes down and says, would you like to be a saint? Rather, he offers us Uh, invitations to little bits of sacrifice here and there, maybe big sacrifices, uh, and we resist them. So, for instance, the invitation to make a commitment to marriage or to community life, the invitation to trust a teaching of the church uh, that I don't yet understand or maybe that even seems wrong to me, the invitation put forward by our Lord in the Beatitudes. And if you notice the way the Beatitudes are structured, he's pointing us to the future, Uh, they will be satisfied, right? So rather than lamenting a lost past, our Lord is inviting us to trust that there's a future that he is bringing about that's going to bring us joy and peace. But this resistance we, we put up, I think, oftentimes looks to the past rather than the future, a desirable future. So uh, we have a, a kind of life we were happy with before, or we look back to a time when we were happy and we want to hold on to that in some way. So, for example, when we're invited to love someone else, if this means acting in a way that will 
cause us to put to one side something about ourselves that we like, uh, or to trust God or to trust some teaching and put aside my own opinion. This feels inauthentic in some way. But let me return to my earlier example of musical compositions. I hope this is a helpful example. So one of the mistakes that beginning composers tend to make is getting attached to those inspirations uh, that we get and then shirking the hard work of editing, correcting, even tossing out ideas that once seemed promising but are not salvageable. So being attached to my own ideas, being attached to my own inspirations. And uh, the great Stravinsky once said that he throws out 95% of his ideas. This is why he's Stravinsky and I'm not, right? Again, how does he know which ones to keep? By being a student of great composers who already finished their work, and we know that it's excellent. So again, in the saints, we have countless examples of different types of human lives, but live to the fullest, to the heights of charity and holiness, and even of joy or what I would call poised spontaneity. Uh, There's a reality to the saints that many of us lack. And today, as we celebrate all the saints, we are invited to turn our gaze away from our beginnings and toward our blessed end, toward the future, toward the saints whose lives are our compass, our guide for determining whether we are achieving the goal of our faith or falling short. We have examples of how to grow in holiness, how to be true disciples. And we know that these saints today, right now, are free of care, that they experience the joy of resting in the truth, of knowing the beauty of God and all of God's works. They are inviting us to follow in their wake, to study their lives, to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, toward the goal of our faith, which is our salvation. And not only that, our celebration today is also a reminder that we are united intrinsically to these witnesses of holiness through the body of Christ, the communion of saints. In other words, achieving our goal is not simply up to us. It's something that we get a lot of help with, that we are working together with the saints and with the Holy Spirit. So let us follow the Spirit's lead as it is manifested in the lives of all the saints.